My dear friends in Christ, on this day of recollection, I wanted to give you a few words first about what is a day of recollection and maybe some notes on how to use this day and, and hopefully gain something from it, reap the fullest amount of fruit that we can. Now we know that in our day-to-day lives, it is busy. There are many, many things. The day tends to fly by and we don't have much time to slow down, to center ourselves spiritually, to think about things. And that is why we have this day of recollection. This day is a little different from the rest of the days of the conference. The previous days we have heard many wonderful lectures and hopefully have absorbed a lot of good information. We've enjoyed each other's company and really relished the the fact of being together with so many people of like mind. But today has a slightly more specific purpose. We are here very specifically for our souls. And we are going to, as I mentioned, reap some sort of spiritual fruit from the talks today and, and from our own recollections. And that's why I want to suggest um, for this day of recollection, if possible, we can make some notes um, even mental notes, but, but I particularly like physical notes. There's a very interesting mental condition that I heard about where a person remembers every single detail of every single day that they have lived in their entire life. And as far as the scientific community is aware there are only 10 or 12 of these people in existence. So in other words, I don't think any of us have that condition. We tend to forget. So in order that we make solid and persevering progress, it's a good idea to make, um, you know, take some notes. What, what have I gleaned from these talks? What have I learned? And importantly, What are my resolutions? What am I going to do based upon this knowledge? But about our our talks today, there will be four, as you I'm sure know from the, the schedule, and this follows the pattern laid out by St. Louis Marie de Montfort in his preparation for total consecration to Jesus through Mary. And as I'm sure many of you uh, have been here before for the day of recollection that you're, you're very aware of this but this is a a wonderful method and if you have read total consecration or a, a, excuse me true devotion to Mary um, you're aware of St. Louis's method that we go to Almighty God that he is our ultimate and our final goal but there are some good practical steps to get to him, principally our blessed mother. If we are to know Christ, then we should know his mother. But in order to know them, we have to get rid of certain things. And these are the topics for our first two conferences today. The first one 
renouncement of the world. And that's what we'll be talking about for the next 45 minutes or so. And I just want to give you as somewhat a, a note as well. We'll try to make the talks about 45 minutes so that there's some time in between. We have some time for that reflection, making some, some notes, thinking of some resolutions. So what is meant by renouncement of the world? This is an interesting question because there will be many people and sensible, good people who will say, well, what is so wrong with the world? God made it. And this is true. So we need to clarify what is meant by renouncement of the world. And and we know that this can be explained even better by one word, and that is worldliness, the spirit of worldliness. Because the world itself, there's nothing wrong with the world itself. This is like part of the problem that the Manichaean heresy got into early on in the church. This was a a very odd heresy. They believed that everything was broken down into two groups. There was the physical world and there was the spiritual world. And everything in this physical world was evil. That the devil was the king of this physical world. And we know, of course, that Manichaeism was swiftly and strongly condemned by the church. But Unfortunately, there can sometimes be a leaning in this direction. We tend to think, well, anything that is of the earth is not of heaven, therefore we should shun it. And although, yes, it's true, our our hearts should be on heaven, should be on heavenly things, it doesn't mean that everything here below is evil. A good and a uh, conspicuous example that we might use is St. Francis of Assisi. We know quite a bit about St. Francis of Assisi. And, and, you know, this example is true of all the saints, but I think of St. Francis in particular. He loved God's creation. It inspired him. It made him think of the creator. He was so fond of walking in the woods and enjoying the beauty, loving the animals, that were a reflection of God's goodness. It says very clearly, in fact, in Genesis, when God was creating all things, at the end of each day he said, it is good, that, that God saw that it was good. So yes, God's creation is objectively good. And it's hard not to be impressed by this sometimes. And I don't mean this by, by any fashion as a brag, but I am extraordinarily blessed to live in Rathrum, Idaho. And there are many beautiful places all over the world, all over our, our country, and, and every place has its particular beauty. But it was just the other morning, I was walking from the seminary building over to our church, a couple hundred yards 
and it was about 6.30 and the sun was just coming up. And there was a fog over the whole valley because we're pretty high up on a mountainside. And the sun had just come over one of the peaks of the mountains in the east. And it was incredible. It was impossible to not be moved by that, that scene. But the moving thing was the fact that this, this is beautiful and God has let me see it. He made this for a reason. He made this for me and for all mankind to show us just how good he is. So the world is a good thing. So what do we mean when we say the world is our enemy? We think about our enemy in a three basic classes and we hear this fairly often it's the world the flesh and the devil but as mentioned i think this first enemy the world can be distilled in slightly different idea worldliness maybe another word for worldliness can be selfishness christ warned against this enemy very often. We can look up just among some of the examples. The gospel according to St. Matthew, chapter 10, verse 37. Chapter 16, verse 19. Chapter 22, verse 37. Chapter 19, verse 22. St. John, just as many, and in all the other evangelists, Christ warns about worldliness and selfishness. He told Pilate plainly his followers were not of this world. His kingdom was heavenly. And so we must renounce the world. A man cannot have two masters. And if we are to gain heaven, we have to renounce this concept of the world. Selfishness, worldliness. But we have to identify it first in our, our own lives, specifically. Not just have this sort of vague, maybe a little nebulous idea of worldliness, but what does this mean exactly to us and in our daily lives? Saint... No, excuse me, Father uh, Gregory, just the other day on Thursday, spoke beautifully about vocations, religious vocations. And I don't want to give the impression that I think the answer to the fight against worldliness is that we all become religious. That would be lovely, but it's, it's not God's will. But Father Gregory talked about the steps that a religious takes to overcome this idea of worldliness. And though this is maybe very, it's, it's specific and important to a religious, I think it's something that can be applied to all of us, lay people, religious alike. They, these are categories that can be used to easily understand our fight 
And these categories I'm talking about are the three vows that a religious takes. The vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience. I think that if we take these individually and look at the virtue that is there in, in, in making or pronouncing this vow and its opposite vices, we can still apply these things to ourselves and have a good understanding of what is the worldliness within me. Now, poverty. A religious makes a vow of poverty. That is, he, he renounces the right to own things. Now, this is usually considered to be the most difficult of the vows. And it's not necessarily true. The initial sacrifice is difficult, it's, it's irksome, but you learn very quickly that, no, actually life without things is pretty nice. There are far less worries, far less things to become entangled in. But in our, our own lives, how does this find application? Because for most of you, this is not reality. It is not God's will that you make a vow of poverty. But our Lord again says very plainly, it is the spirit of poverty that is important. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This cannot be emphasized enough. Kind of hearkening back again to that idea of the world not itself being bad. In the same way, riches, money, possessions in themselves are not bad. It is our attachment to them that can be a real problem. We know that we, after all, can't take it with us. So what is the point in this attachment? This is a, a thought that we ought to remind ourselves of every single day. Everything that I'm doing today is for heaven. Eternity is forever. All of these things are temporary. Things especially are so temporary. There's a little anecdote in the life of St. Philip Neri that I, I just love. And this can be applied to so many different things. But there was this young man who had many different talents. And he was, he was a very pious young man. And he was also a, a, under the spiritual direction of St. Philip Neri. So they were talking one day and this young man had just received some great position in a, a lawyer's office. It was wonderful. It was, it was going to lead to further things. It was going to further his career greatly. And he came to St. Philip because they were great friends to, to tell him about it. And St. Philip was so full of excitement. He's like, that's wonderful. I'm so glad to hear that. So what's the next step? And then the young man, who's all full of excitement, he's like, well, I, I think that after so many years, I'll be allowed a, a partnership in this lawyer's office. 
and, and you know, see a lot of great success there. He's like, well, that's wonderful. And then what? He's like, well, I, hopefully I can make a name for myself and, and maybe even someday become a judge or a magistrate or some, something even higher. He's like, that is fantastic. Then what? He's like, well, maybe I'll find a wife and, and I'll have children and be, be happy. And he's like, absolutely, that's fantastic. And then what? And the wheels started to turn in this young man's head. He's like, and then what? No matter what you do in life, there's that question of, and then? What happens when it's all over? No matter the success, no matter the amount of things that we have, we can't take them with us. St. Alphonsus Liguori emphasizes this very, very strongly in his masterpiece, Preparation for Death. That they are nothing more than a means to an end. And so we have to, con- we have to with incredible energy, inspire in ourselves that idea that we should not have attachment, that it is the spirit of poverty that is so important. Because it's unfortunately true, whether we have possessions or not, we can be attached to them. There have been many rich people that have gone to heaven or even become great saints. There have sadly been many poor people in purgatory or even hell for the attachment to things, even if it be covetousness. I find it extraordinarily odd, sad, but strange. When you go past a poor neighborhood, maybe a trailer park, and see a Cadillac parked in someone's driveway, it's just strange. So no matter our position, we can have that attachment. We have to remember it is a a means to an end. And again, this examination, really look inward. Are we guilty of this in any way? Because if we examine ourselves carefully, I think that we'll find that we are. Maybe we care a little too much about our house, what our friends think about it, our car, how nice a car do we drive, our phone, what kind of phone do we have and what sort of attachment do we have to it? If Father Anaya were to make an announcement, we'll be collecting everyone's phones at lunch so that the priests can go through your phones just to make sure that everything is, is all good. We... That would be, hopefully not, but maybe a little shocked. And why? Is there something in there that might be a little worldly if a priest were to see it? Too many game apps to waste our time? Too many social media posts? Whatever it may be, it doesn't have a place. A man cannot have two masters. 
the next vow that a religious takes of the three is the vow of chastity. And this is perhaps the aspect of worldliness that is the most glaringly apparent. It is thoroughly disturbing to see how the world has become entirely saturated with the vice of impurity. Satan works with this sin more than any other. His chief means, really is his chief means and, and of, of tearing souls down. And he uses the various channels of society to accomplish this. Most prominently the internet. But the spirit of worldliness connected with this vice is, is even perhaps more encompassing. That we know that it includes any manner of impurity or indecency. But even more than this, it is a spirit of pleasure seeking. There is a terrible question that, that to me is a great example of this spirit of pleasure seeking. And this, this question has become extremely relevant and contentious in these times. And that is the question of marijuana. It is a very interesting question for moral theologians or priests who are trying to guide souls. But it is interesting because it is, after all, a natural substance. God made it. In what principle is it different than, say, alcohol? Anything taken in excess can be wrong. There are many, many arguments in favor for the use of this drug. And there, there are indeed legitimate uses, medical or that is truly prescribed for a, a good reason. But I think in our discussion on the spirit of pleasure seeking, this is a good example Maybe it is difficult for priests to say absolutely black and white, it's wrong. Or absolutely black and white, it's okay. It might be impossible. But it is a good example of that spirit of the world that is seeking pleasure, seeking comfort. And it might be something as simple as, well, it was an extremely long day at work. I am so stressed out. Just, you know, it's just to calm the nerves. Isn't this exactly, directly the opposite of the spirit of Christ? Didn't he say, if you will come after me, take up your cross daily. Take up your cross daily. We don't hide from the cross. We don't hide from our difficult circumstances or stresses or dilemmas. They're going to be there for each and every one of us. 
But do we seek the cross or do we seek comfort and pleasure? So very often the things of heaven and the things of earth come in direct conflict. And this is one of the greatest, the chief examples. Seeking the cross versus seeking pleasure. Our Lord said in the gospel according to St. John, He that liveth, excuse me, he that loveth his life shall lose it. He that hateth his life in this world keepeth it unto life everlasting. St. Paul was very clear. He said, I chastise my body and I bring it into subjection. Lest in preaching to others, I myself become a castaway. He talked in another place about a man of the flesh and a man of the spirit being at war. How true we know this to be. How clearly we see it in our everyday lives. This man of the flesh who wants so badly to be comfortable. To seek pleasure. And the man of the spirit who is of God. Who seeks the cross. My dear friends, the spirit of comfort is not from God. And I believe that in this day and age, something that has been tragically and almost altogether lost is the idea of corporal penances. This is something in the lives of the saints that we have to agree. Perhaps it is to be admired rather than imitated in some cases. We, we are not meant to scourge ourselves until we're a bloody mess. Some of the, paints, the saints did this and were inspired by God to do this. But do we do anything to oppose, to combat this spirit of the world that is lustfulness and the seeking of pleasure? Perhaps just a little fast from time to time. Give up our favorite food. Skip dessert. Wake up a little earlier in the morning. There are so many things that we can do. Our imaginations are usually pretty active. They can help us in this area. What are some little things? I mean, even things that seem silly. Wear your socks inside out. It sounds crazy, but it can be a penance. It can be true fuel to overcome Satan, our flesh, and the world, the spirit of pleasure-seeking. So let's examine ourselves. What have we done and what can we do? Now the third vow that is made by a religious is the vow of obedience. Now really, in a way, this is the most difficult of the vows. Because we might not have a problem with just obeying orders. Your superior says, do this, and you do it. That's not extremely difficult. 
But this entails more than just strict obedience. It is the spirit of obedience. And we have to comply with a strict obedience from time to time with our employer or our parents or, or spouse, whatever it may be. But again, there is more. And I like to paraphrase a line from the imitation of Christ. It says, it is a wholesome thing and leads to perfection to give up one's own will, even if only for the sake of peace. To give up one's own will. This is the spirit of obedience. The world tells us a very different story. We might hear such alluring things as, be whoever you want to be. Don't let anything stand in your way. Just believe and have faith in yourself. And nothing can stop you. Do it your way. Just be yourself. How often do we hear things like this? And maybe there is a benign interpretation that could be given these little phrases, but there's an underlying theme. There's an undercurrent here. And it's encouraging pure selfishness. Think about yourself. You're the most important person in the world. How opposed to the Spirit of God. This is in direct opposition. The spirit of obedience is, is, is just this, to give up our way to do our best, to eliminate self entirely. We would think of St. Paul again, I live now, not I, but Christ lives in me. This is one of the foundations of, the, of ascetical theology or the spiritual life that we eliminate the idea of self. And how often do we see God working magnificently in people when they have accomplished this? Most especially, most particularly, our Blessed Mother. She was so empty of self. She was given the greatest tidings of all time that she was going to be the Mother of God because she was full of grace and found worthy but what was her response? My soul magnifies the Lord. Not me. Whatever good is in me is from him. So there is this humility, this idea of diminishing self. My dear friends in Christ, that is not easy. More than just the strict obedience, again, it is a uh, an overwhelming spirit. There are some interesting examples in the lives of the saints that give us a, a sense of this spirit. And often it's, it's in connection with the idea of strict obedience and also the spirit of obedience. You can't have real obedience if you don't have the spirit of it. Just doing it on the surface means nothing. There is a story in... Well, this is given by uh, 
Father Rodriguez, who is one of the masters of the spiritual life. This is in a book that all religious read. But he gave this story about a monk in the early centuries. And I'm sure this is familiar, but the story of a monk who was told by his superior to take this stick. It was a dry, dead stick. He wanted him to go plant it in the ground, and they lived in the desert, so plant it in the dry soil, and he wanted that monk to water the stick every single day. We're told by Father Rodriguez that he did it. He didn't ask why. He didn't even question within himself, well, this is odd, but he did it. He did it for years. Every day, he went and watered this stick. If I remember the story correctly, it was the day of the death of that brother, the stick sprouted. A beautiful story. And there are so many like this about how obedience especially when blind, is incredibly difficult. Can we look inward? Can we examine our own lives? I have a feeling it's not going to be hard to come up with material when we make that examination. How many pointless arguments have we had? How much needless bragging have we done? How many stubborn or judgmental thoughts have flitted through our mind? But if we could remember that phrase from the imitation of Christ, it is a wholesome thing and it leads to perfection to give up one's will, if only for the sake of peace. We don't have to prove that we're right. Who cares? We might very well be right, but is it going to make an argument? Is it going to upset someone else? Can we just drop it? And no, we should not think for a moment that this is weakness. On the contrary, this is the foundation of strength to overcome our own will is a lifetime of work. So let's think about it. We all know that we must imitate Christ. We must try and identify whatever is in us that is not Christ-like and cast it out. I want to read to you as we finish up this first talk on renouncement of the world, a few excerpts from a beautiful book. And this is, the, the title of the book is simply Our Best Friend. And it's by a father, Pesch, who originally wrote in German. But it's a fantastic book. He talks, he, he begins the book by saying, everybody needs a friend. It's just part of our human nature. We need a friend. And a human friend, and there's nothing wrong with that, 
But we need to come to this realization that Christ is our greatest friend. And in this book, he talks about the opposition of the world, how the world is so different from Christ. The spirit of the world is darkness, he says. The world is illumined by the eternal light when it is turned towards it. It is in darkness when it is turned away from this eternal light. The parallel here with our earth is perfect. The hemisphere turned toward the sun is illumined. That turned away from it is in darkness. When the sun has set, we light all manner of lamps. But these are but poor substitutes which illumine but a few points of the darkened earth and would not be able to prevent the universal extinction of men, animals, and plants if the sun did not rise again with its life-giving rays. When men turn away from the eternal light, they die a spiritual death, an eternal death. No matter how many other lamps they may light, these artificial lights indeed serve as a substitute for a short time and within narrow limits, but all of them together cannot become a life-giving sun. He who trusts them alone remains in the night of death. So the spirit of the world is darkness and Christ is the light. In another place, Father Pesh talks about those who love God love what God loves. This is, was actually something told to St. Catherine of Genoa who was having a conversation with our Lord and she had this little dilemma that she told him about. She said, Lord, you tell me to love my neighbor but how can I love my neighbor when my heart is preoccupied with, the, with love for thee? And he answered her very simply, those who love me love what I love. In this same strain, Father Pesh continues, the world continues to hate our Savior, as he predicted that it would. In his farewell address to his apostles before the Passion, he said, if you have been of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. The servant is not greater than his master. If they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Yea, the hour cometh that whosoever killeth you will think that he doth a service to God. Again, that opposition. My dear friends, in Christ, let us examine our own lives in light of what we have been thinking about. What is the spirit of the world? We know that it is directly opposed to the spirit of Christ, but in what ways exactly does it apply to me? In this four-step journey of coming to a greater love of God, let us remember in this first step 
It is going to be difficult. But there is no greater effort. There is no greater cause for us to give that effort. Renouncing the world is not meant to be easy. If it were, what would be the point? Perhaps now we can better see what the spirit of the world is and how it applies to us. And maybe we can use these three categories for a a tidy examination. Poverty, chastity and obedience. Poverty, the spirit of loving things. Am I too attached to things? Chastity, the spirit of pleasure-seeking. Do I want too much comfort, too much pleasure? And obedience, the spirit of really selfishness, willfulness, rebellion. Do I conform to God and his holy will? But remember, we do have the antidote to this worldly spirit. Namely, our Lord, who is here physically with us. And has he not given us his own most precious possession? Our dear mother is truly our mother. Let us ask our dear Savior and our mother to grant us the grace to fly from the spirit of worldliness so that we may rest for eternity safely in their arms. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, amen.